Hi everyone, I'm Laura Paskus, senior producer for the show Our Land, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future on New Mexico PBS. It is October 4th, and you are listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. This week, I have a great conversation for you about Chaco Canyon in northwestern New Mexico. So maybe you've been out to the National Park, driven that long road through the San Juan Basin from Highway 550, and visited the great houses and the kivas. Maybe you live on the Eastern Navajo Nation, or maybe your tribe has ancestral ties to the landscape and the people of Chaco Canyon. Whatever your connection, you know what a special place it is. And you probably know that Chaco is more than just what's within that national park boundary. But the greater Chacoan landscape is also valuable in a different way. Companies have drilled thousands of wells across the San Juan Basin. And despite talk about protections for the park and nearby communities and the landscape and the environment, the Biden administration is sticking to a Trump era plan that opens the area to even more drilling. On September 29th last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit heard oral arguments on the latest case challenging the Department of the Interior's approval of 370 new drilling permits in that area. This case is just the latest chapter. For years, a coalition of indigenous people, environmentalists, and archaeologists have been trying to protect Chaco. And in the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing from some of those people. This week, you're going to hear from Teresa Pasquale. She's from the Pueblo of Acoma. She's an archaeologist. And these days, she's also the director of the Historic Preservation Office at Acoma. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about why Chaco has special meaning. We talk about how fossil fuel development has affected the landscape and communities. We talk about things like roads and flaring and the loss of connection with the past. We talk a lot about what's at risk from further development. And Teresa explains what is to be gained from protecting that landscape. Here's that conversation. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for being here. Hi, Laura. How you doing? Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm good. So I wanted to start, and I wish we were actually sitting there together today right now. Um, Taco Canyon. Lots of people are familiar with it as a national park and a place they might visit for a day or maybe camp. Um, but it's a lot more than that to the people of the Pueblo of Acoma and other tribes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why Chaco Canyon is so special. Sure, um, Chaco Canyon, as most people refer to it uh, and know it as, is uh, referred to as Washba Shaka um, there at my home community of Acoma. And it's significant because it plays a an important role in the movement and migration of our people as they made their way into present-day Acoma. Um, many pueblos and many tribes have some kind of relational um, context to that special and sacred place. Um, many pueblos uh, reaffirm their present-day connection to Chaco and 
and also have stories and oral histories that take them through that greater Chacoan landscape as they made their way to the present day Pueblos that they occupy now. And so these places were places where our, um, our ancestral people and their clans really started to form and organize into the distinct societies and, and Pueblo communities that we have today. And so they brought that knowledge, that skills, those um, the teachings that they acquired over, over centuries of living on the landscape um, and really brought that forward into, into the present day communities. And so what we have now in our Pueblo communities here in the state of New Mexico um, really are the descendants of those people, the ancestral people who once occupied those lands. And so that's what gives it special meaning. You mentioned the um, greater Chacoan landscape. Um, so Taco Canyon and the, the importance of it is not just within the park boundary. What is that greater Chacoan landscape? So when we talk about the greater Chacoan landscape, we're really talking about if we saw an image of of um, that area on the map and we look at that northwestern quadrant of New Mexico, the San Juan Basin area, we're really talking about all of that area that occupies uh, and surrounds Chaco Canyon. We, we know there are existing sites that take us up towards the Farmington area, places like Aztec and Salmon, Angel Peak. You start to come down further south, we can find Chacoan outliers to the west of Mount Taylor um, and, and sites that actually um, come down as far as as the Pueblo of Acoma and go, go east over the mountain ridges that take um, take us to places like present-day Jemez Pueblo, um, Zia Pueblo, uh, Santa Ana, or Tamaya, as they call themselves. Now, uh, all of these communities have sites that connect them that are part of this network of Chacoan sites um, that lie outside of the park um, boundary. And so when we talk about the greater Chacoan landscapes, it's all of those sites that create this network of distinct villages, almost um, districts, if you would, if, if we're using that as a reference, but really distinct villages and communities that settled in those regional areas and connect places to, to um, sites that one might be familiar with, as I mentioned, Aztec, Salmon, Mesa Verde, those are all places along with Bears Ears in Utah. Those are all sites that play a very prominent role for our Pueblo and tribal communities, not just here in New Mexico. We have the Hopi tribe in, in uh, Arizona who also has connection to those places as well. Um, so there are many tribes that, that maintain that connection. So I think sometimes, um, you know, for me as a white person who's not from New Mexico, you can look at these sites and think those are archaeological, these places and think those are archaeological sites, they're of the past. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the past ties us to the present and how we think about the past kind of charts a future as well? 
Well, I think if we're talking about the Pueblo context of understanding what we, what we refer to as an archeological site, we really have to look at how these places were settled. And they weren't settled distinctly for, for the purpose of building a structure. It was what were, what were the instructions given to the people as they first began to occupy or what we say emerge into this area as, as the point of origin um, came about. As our people emerged and moved into these different lands, they reflected in not only the built environment, but also in the lands that they um, planted their corn, uh, in places that they hunted and gathered. Those instructions um, that were given to the very first people. And within those instructions were those things that we refer to as those core values of respect, of stewardship, of love, of honor, things that we can all identify with. And they built those, um, created the built environment really to reflect some of those values, to reflect the connection to the stars, the heavens, the moon, the sun, to be able to watch those movements, to be able to watch the change of seasons throughout time, um, to watch the movements of, of different herds of elk and deer and other animals as, as they moved across that very broad landscape and not saw them, they didn't see themselves as apart from, but integrated with all of those different um, systems that they were coming into knowledge of. And so what we see then happening, especially with, with the archeological sites as we see them now is, is, is not just the built environment, but, but all of the things that were imbued into the creation of those structures, into those habitation sites, into those hunting and gathering sites, into those places where perhaps they quarried for rock or um, uh, created tools. All of those places were imbued with song and prayer and story. And those values are really what is the continuity of what is carried forth from the past to the present. Even though in modern days, perhaps our clothing has changed, our materials have changed, our, our villages are, um, are distinctly our own. And they're not the, the four-story um, uh, grandiose villages that we know in Chaco, right? We, we've, we've brought them into more um, contemporary settings where our pueblos are housed, where our families, our fields are, our children are. And while those things may have changed over time, it's the values and the teaching, the song and the prayer and the languages, all those things that are the continuous link to the past that have really been carried forward. But even though we are in the present day, 
we still have an obligation to care for and steward those places of the past because it's in those places that our ancestors are buried, that our prayers are planted, that really are the root of all of our wisdom and knowledge and teachings that we pass on to our grandchildren. It's only in those places when we take them back that they can learn. These aren't things that can be learned in a book. We can't pull a chapter from um, say an encyclopedia and say, here is your history. It's only by visiting those places, spending time, talking to one another in our traditional languages that, that we learn those things. It's how I learn. It's how um, I share that wisdom with, with our family's children and with our grandchildren in the hopes that they too will do that with their own grandchildren and visit those places. So in the last, gosh, many decades, probably since the 1940s, the San Juan Basin has been a place that has been drilled for natural gas and more recently for shale oil, I think it's called. Um, and I'm curious, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of wells around that Chacoan landscape. Um, and I know there's, there's broad impacts, but what are some of the ways in which that drilling has affected the landscape and the people who are a part of it? We know that over 90% of federal lands in that greater Chacoan landscape have already been permit it for exploration and development. What the Pueblos and tribes have long been asking for for the federal agencies is really the protection of that last remaining, I would say even less than 10% um, as development continues. What is lost in that landscape really is, is everything that the development touches that is needed to support that kind of extraction from roads to well pads to the visual landscape to, to um, the soundscapes that exist to the migration routes of wildlife to um, just the ability to connect with a sacred landscape and the ancestors in quietness and peace and solitude. Um, all of that is lost with development and you don't have to go far to see it. Whether you come in from the north side or come in through the south entrance to the park, one will see what different types of extraction have done over decades of development in that area. Because my, my village, Akuma, sits to the south, I happen to come in from the south entrance to the park. And it is never lost on me that just in that short trip to Chaco, um, that one can see uh, uranium development. We can see the impacts of coal and coal mining in that area, and now oil and gas. And because, as, I, as I've said, our history isn't written in our Pueblo communities and many tribal communities, that history, that, that connection to place is all held in the transmission of our languages through those stories, prayers, and songs. 
that as that land is disturbed and developed, it becomes as if one is erasing the pages of that history book. And we can't grow a new landscape. Certainly one may say, well, after the development, we'll, we'll try and uh, regrow the grass and the plants, but really the context is lost. And so when we lose that and the ability to bring our children to those places to teach them, then what really what we're impacting is the ability of a present day community to not only transmit that knowledge, but all of the knowledge that's contained within that landscape. Our ability to understand concepts um, in terms of conservation, in terms of stewardship, in terms of uh, understanding how to deal with climate change. All of those answers are contained within that landscape, but it can only be possible if those communities are still allowed to make that very present day connection and actively use that landscape as it was intended. We know now that many of the surrounding communities are, are suffering from the impacts of all of the, all of the methane all of the impacts from the increased traffic and what that does to community. Um, we know that the flaring also obstructs the night view, which many people love to go out there and, and observe the movement of the stars. In one of the most beautiful places that was built for that. Now, when you go out at night, you can see not only um, the lights from the flaring, but you can see as development has encroached on the park, all of the light from the different communities that are starting to encroach closer and closer on the park. And those are things that people find important and find unique and make New Mexico special and, and why people are drawn to that place. But if we don't work to actively manage that development, and protect what is important, then we in fact may lose those unique characteristics that make it special to many people. Yeah. So the Trump administration had approved almost 400 new drilling permits, um, which a coalition of tribes and environmentalists and archeologists have really been opposing and pushing back on this development for years and years. Um, and are now trying to reverse that decision, but the Biden administration is sticking to it. Why, why do you think we as a society seem unable to or unwilling to protect these most special and limited of places? I think it's hard for, for all of us um, because we're not willing to make that sacrifice. Protecting some of these special places requires hard work, commitment, the dedication of resources, but also sacrifice on our own personal part. We all live in an environment that is heavily dependent on oil and gas. And we haven't really invested um, long enough 
with enough resources to start really moving us away. We, we have just really begun that transition here in the state. But what we need is really to understand what is that impact on present day communities? And what is lost if, if we fail to act, if we fail to move, if we fail to make that commitment towards change? It requires a commitment from all levels, not just governmental leadership, not just from the policymakers, but from every single one of us as New Mexicans. It requires a commitment for us to say, this place is worth saving, that I will make the sacrifice to do without, to look at alternative ways of, of lighting up our homes, of heating our homes, of looking at alternative economic models that aren't dependent on oil and gas or other industries that require extraction, to look at other models that allow us for, for the protection and conservation of water, especially in climate change. When we're dealing with climate change, it's really not, it's really not for us. It's, it's for all of those generations yet to come that will have to deal with whether we made the sacrifice or not. And they're going to be the ones that have to carry that burden for us. And so when I spend time in a place like Chaco, and I sit there and absorb what kind of thought and sacrifice my ancestors made to build such a place. Fully knowing that somewhere down the line, their descendants will have to rely upon that knowledge and that wisdom to see their communities through in the face of climate change, in the face of changing monsoonal seasons, in the face of trying to rematriate seeds back to their communities, of all of these things that cha challenge their ability to persevere, that it will be those things that they built that will hold the wisdom for them as a path forward, as a pathway forward to guide them. And when I sit there and I dwell upon that, I think they must have had the wonderful foresight to say, I'm willing to imbue this place with everything, my thought, my prayer, my song, that I leave it here for them, even though I have not seen that generation. And you can only express a sense of gratitude in that place to say, thank you, that that thought was there. And now it's up to us in the present day to fight to preserve it, to protect it. And not just for our tribal communities, but there's wisdom there for all New Mexicans and anyone who visits that place. Every time I've encountered a visitor who has gone to that special place, 
there's no one that has come away that says they haven't been moved or been touched in some way. And that's the magic and the beauty of that place. And so that's why here in the state of New Mexico, we have to do our diligence, our due diligence, to ensure that those places are protected for the future. So under a number of federal laws, the federal government is supposed to engage in tribal consultation. And we've talked about this many times <laughs> over the years. But, but does the federal government yet take its role and responsibility to consult with sovereign nations seriously? And is it something that is being done adequately with respect to Chaco or any other projects in New Mexico? I think what I see as the challenge is that we often have um, well-intentioned folks who work in the federal agencies who are obligated to meet the mission and the vision of a particular agency. In this case, with the Bureau of Land Management, it does have an obligation um, to those permit holders. To the Bureau of Indian Affairs is also a federal agency that, that is involved in the work that we are doing around Chaco. And they too have an obligation to their permittees, the allottees. And I think what is the challenge is how do you balance what the tribes are asking for versus the obligation that federal agencies have to the public or to um, the people that they are beholden to. That being said, there are also instances where agencies don't have available to them the resources whether that's, whether that's personnel or um, the monetary resources to be able to do the work that will give them the information to help Im make informed management decisions. All of those things can lead to a failure when we talk about consultation. It isn't just about a failure of whether one wants to sit down and meet with another, um, whether the federal government wants to sit and engage with a tribe. And certainly there have been many um, Pueblos and tribes who have advocated to federal agencies that say, we simply do not want to be a checked box on your list. But we really have to understand what is it that we're asking for. And those engaged dialogues that should be a part of tribal consultation require time, which is not always a part of the federal consultation process because they're often operating on very short time frames. And all of these centuries of wisdom that has been handed down take more than a 24-hour, 30, 60, 90-day consultation to understand. We also have a change oftentimes within staffing. 
And so it's hard to build that relationship with people within the federal agency. And so all of these things may seem like minor things to one on the outside, but they are critical when it comes to truly engaging in that government-to-government -government consultation. What are the fundamentals between you and I in terms of that relationship that allow us to have deep, meaningful conversations? I often, I often hear governors who talk about, you know, I don't want to see a form letter come across my desk. I want to sit across from another individual and say, this is what my concerns are or what my community is, is bringing to my attention that isn't being addressed. And those don't happen very often in the way that we ask them to occur. And so is there the opportunity to do better? By all means, there's always the opportunity to do better. Have we hit the mark on consultation between us and BLM and other federal agencies? Probably not, but we work at it. And our role, at least on the tribal side, and as for me as a director of, of the Tribal Historic Preservation Office is really to hold the federal agencies accountable so that they meet that obligation towards consultation, but also that they truly understand what's being shared with them so they know how to integrate it into their decision-making process. But we can always do better. Right. So we've talked a bit about what, what has been lost, what could be lost. I'm curious what could if we were to protect Taco in the ways that we still can and in, in true ways, what are the things that we gain and what are the things that future generations gain? When we do this work, it is, it is work that calls us beyond the creation of, of, of policy. In my home community, I, I see it as giving back young people a place where identity formation begins. When we talk in the state of New Mexico about a place where our children are struggling within the educational system. Identity formation is critical to that. Being certain of who you are and where you come from and being secure in knowing that those places that are cherished by your community that make that foundation for your learning as a young person, aren't threatened, aren't going to be destroyed by development, that those places are just as important as your math book, as your history, as your chemistry book, as your English book, 
that those places along with what you learn are critical if not more important than those things that you will acquire in Western education. They are critical to the foundation of the well-being of our young people in identity formation, in mental health, in education, in language learning, dual language learning. All of these things make for stronger students, make for stronger communities, make for stronger leaders. That is what we gain in terms of tribal communities. It's also what we stand to lose. There is the opportunity in that area to begin to finally have a discussion about alternative economic models. We don't have to put before our children that the only opportunity that they're going to have in terms of economics is going to be a job in the extractive industry. My father worked in the uranium mines. Back then, there were very few options for them. And that's what sustained them. It's what put us through school. But in the present day, we have alternative models of different types of economic development that can sustain our children where they don't have to make that same choice because the options are limited. We gain those things when we preserve those places. We gain stronger, healthier communities. Our, our mental health, our physical health improves. Um, the wildlife improves those things that impact um, climate change like methane releases, those things begin to subside and nature has a way of restoring balance. We as humans have a way in which we too can participate in restoring balance. We gain more than we lose and I think when we talk about conservation, especially in those areas that are often viewed by others on the outside as wastelands, as someplace that can be sacrificed, we began to value not only the lands that are there, but the people, the people who live there. And we began to say to one another, we see you. I value you. I want something better for you. And that's, that's my wish. That's my wish and my hope that if we do move towards protection of those places, that we gain back for our communities those things that help to raise a new generation of young people in stronger, healthier, well-educated communities. And, and that will lead us to better outcomes for us here in the state.
Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Laura Paskus. Find more environmental content on New Mexico in Focus as part of our show, Our Land, New Mexico's Environmental Past, Present, and Future. You can find Our Land all over the place on the PBS video app, Instagram, YouTube, and you can subscribe to Our Land Weekly. Thanks for listening.